Welcome to This Week in the History of Psychology for February 4th to 10th. This is your host, Christopher Green of York University in Toronto, Canada. In this episode, we'll first take a brief look at some of the most important events that happened during this week in psychology's past. Then we'll have our feature interview with Professor Ludi T. Benjamin Jr. on the separation in 1988 of the American Psychological Society from the American Psychological Association. Finally, we'll celebrate the birthdays of some important psychologists. All this and more in this installment of This Week in the History of Psychology. For February 5th. In 1924, John B. Watson and William McDougall's Battle of Behaviorism debate took place. McDougall was declared the winner of this debate that pitted his instinct psychology against Watson's behaviorism, and later the debate was published in book form. Also on February 5th, in 1975, the California Board of Education declared a moratorium on the use of intelligence tests for placement of students into programs for the educable mentally retarded. The action followed the California Supreme Court decision in Larry P. v. Wilson Riles that racial bias resulted from the practice. For February 6th, in 1951, B.F. Skinner's book, Science and Human Behavior, was first published by Skinner himself in a mimeographed version. The Macmillan Company's publication of the book appeared on January 20th, 1953. For February 8th, in 1911, Freudians attacked the theories of Alfred Adler and his followers at a meeting of the Vienna Psychoanalytic Society. Adler resigned the presidency of the organization shortly afterward and founded his own Society for Individual Psychology in 1912. Also on February 8th, in 1973, after a presentation by Charles Silverstein, the nomenclature committee of the American Psychiatric Association agreed to review the status of homosexuality as a psychiatric disorder. This was an important step in the eventual deletion of homosexuality as a pathological condition in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. For February 9th, in 1883, the first issue of the new series of the journal Science was published. The journal was financially supported by Alexander Graham Bell and Bell's father-in-law. It was later bought and edited by psychologist James McKean Cattell. For February 10th, in 1965, the first classroom trials of Fred Keller's personalized system of instruction began at Arizona State University. On February 4, 1987, the Board of Directors of the American Psychological Association rejected a proposal to reorganize the association into a number of autonomous assemblies. The move would have granted scientific psychologists some independence from the clinical and other applied psychological constituencies which had come to dominate the APA in the years since World War II. As a result of the proposal's failure, about 10,000 scientists formed and joined an entirely independent organization called the American Psychological Society, or APS. 
The APS has since changed its name to the Association for Psychological Science. On the line to tell us about not only the emergence of the APS, but the long history of APA realignments born of uncomfortable relations between psychological scientists and practitioners, is Dr. Ludy T. Benjamin, Jr. of Texas A&M University. Professor Benjamin, as you will recall, talked to us about the Nobel Prize last year. He's the author of several textbooks and a notable APA insider. Professor Benjamin, although the emergence of the APS in 1988 is the most recent reorganization among psychology's major scholarly societies, it's hardly the first. There was the separation of the American Philosophical Association and Titchener's group of experimentalists in the first few years of the 20th century. But uh, then in 1917, there emerged an American Association of Clinical Psychologists. Could you tell us a bit about its origin and its fate? About that time, there was a growing number of psychologists who found themselves in consulting roles. One of those was uh, E. Wallace Wallen, who was involved in what today we would call special education. Another would have been Lita Hollingworth, who had various jobs through the New York Central Clearinghouse in issues that were consulting on mental health, placement uh, of indigent women and men in, in various social services in the city. And it was clear that uh, as psychologists moved into these uh, into these new consulting roles, that they were competing with uh, other people who claimed to offer similar kinds of psychological expertise, people who've been practicing their craft for 100 years and things from phrenology to mental healing to spiritualism, et cetera. And there was concern in, in psychology that the public wasn't very good at distinguishing uh, those kinds of psychologists from the so-called real thing. So Wallen and Lita Hollingworth uh, formed uh, this association, the American Association of Clinical Psychologists, in 1917 and petitioned uh, to be a part of, of APA. Uh, APA really wasn't interested in taking on what they saw as a professional role for the association. And so... For a couple of years, they existed on their own. It was meant to be a credential. It was meant to uh, offer the public a way to recognize, well, these are legitimately trained, university-trained uh, PhD psychologists. Uh, the public really wasn't very much aware of those distinctions probably at that time and didn't really have any easy way to make that determination. And so it, it, its purpose as a credential didn't really work. Uh, in 1919, APA changed its mind and invited them in. Uh, a lot of controversy over that. Uh, was that a good thing for APA? Was it a good thing for the clinical group? APA thought maybe they could control the group better if they were part of APA. The clinical group recognized they'd have a little more clout being part of APA, but they also worried their agenda could be controlled by APA, and that was uh, potentially disturbing. Uh, but they did become the first section of APA. APA today has more than 50 divisions, uh, of, of which there are a number of that would have grown out of this sort of interest, clinical psychology and counseling psychology and industrial and organizational psychology and so on. But they became a section in 1919 and then uh, remained in that role uh, until around 1930. Right. Well, well, still many applied psychologists weren't satisfied with APA's concessions. And in 1930, there arose an association for consulting psychologists, which founded, founded what is now uh, the Journal of Consulting and Clinical Psychology. And that was succeeded in 1937 by the American Association for Applied Psychology, which immediately drew over 400 members. What factors led applied psychologists to repeatedly set up separate organizations, and what became of the, uh, uh, the AAAP? When APA was founded in, uh, in 1892, it listed uh, a single objective in its, uh, in its bylaws, and that was uh, to promote psychology as a science. 
And so when individuals in these various consulting roles uh, wanted APA to assist them, and that meant uh, things like providing some uh, program time at the annual meeting of the APA where they could discuss their issues, uh, they encouraged APA to develop a code of ethics for those who were who were practicing psychology outside of university settings. Uh, they were interested in being able to publish work that was uh, not necessarily experimental work, but more concerned with professional issues. Uh, and they also had talked to APA at one time or another about credentialing, uh, an actual credential, uh, some kind of a certification for applied psychologists. So uh, there was a, there was an interest from the uh, from the practicing group, that is, those outside of the academy, outside of the university settings, uh, to get APA involved in these issues. And APA, uh, almost at every corner, drug its feet on on these things. They just they kept pointing to the bylaws and saying, "Look, it says it says we're about science, and we're really not about promoting professional activities." And so I think it was for those reasons that various uh, applied groups uh, emerged. Uh, beginning with the one we've already discussed, but uh, there were state associations in the 1920s, maybe uh, 10 or so of those, the largest being the New York State Association. In 1930, uh, there was an attempt to bring these organizations together in a confederation. These, again, were, were organizations of applied psychologists, and that didn't seem uh, to be a palatable response, and so the decision was to form a new organization, the Association of Consulting Psychologists, largely New York-based. It was meant to be national, uh, didn't ever really serve that role. They did do a few things that were important. They did start the journal, as you mentioned, in, in 1937, the, the Journal of Consulting Psychology, really the first professional journal of psychology, uh, published today as, uh, as the Journal of Consulting and Clinical Psychology. And in 1933, uh, they did uh, develop an ethics code, uh, the first ethics code for professional psychologists. There, uh, again, uh, there was the hope that this Association of Consulting Psychologists, or ACP, would become national in scope. It never really did. And in 1937, there was a meeting of psychologists involved with ACP and the clinical section of APA and some of these other state organizations. And again, a decision was made to create a totally new organization. That's how AAAP, or the American Association for Applied Psychology, came about. So they emerged in 1937-38. The, the APA clinical section uh, voted itself out of existence, so it disappeared from APA, and the Association of Consulting Psychologists also ended its time, and both of those groups came into the membership of AAAP. Uh, they had a short history, as it turned out, they developed four divisions initially, one in consulting psychology, one in industrial psychology, one in educational psychology, and one in clinical psychology. Uh, eventually, there'd be a fifth one in, in military psychology, but they became a rather uh, powerful group in terms of providing uh, an annual meeting for professional psychologists to get together and talk about issues that were germane to the kinds of things they did. There were some research presentations, but mostly having to do with, with consulting issues. They uh, continued the publication of their journal, again, providing information that was important to those who worked in the applied sector. But then, during World War II, the government came to APA and said, we're going to need an organization of psychology that speaks to both research and practice and training. And, of course, the impetus for that was the recognition of the returning veterans and the psychological needs. Uh, it was quite clear that psychiatry was, was way too small in terms of the number of psychiatrists available to handle the mental health needs of, of all the returning veterans, U.S. veterans. And so psychology was going to have to be a player in mental health services, and that meant 
clinical psychologists. And so there was a push to identify university training programs that would provide the kind of training that clinical psychologists would need. There was a, a push for an accrediting uh, program within the American Psychological Association to do that. And that really meant the practitioners couldn't be outside the, the organization separate from researchers. Uh, so what, what that led to was the reorganization that formed a new APA in 1945. And with that new organization, which AAAP was a part of the planning, AAAP disappeared. Its five divisions became, in fact, part of the initial divisions of APA. When the new APA was formed in 1945, it had 19 divisions, and five of those represented divisions that had been part of the old AAAP. If the first half of the 20th century was about applied psychologists getting adequate representation within the APA, it seems that the second half was about scientific psychologists getting themselves out of the APA. There was the Psychological Roundtable in 1936 and later the Psychonomic Society in 1959. Uh, what was the story behind those groups? Let me back up just a moment and say that one of the things that happened in the 1945 reorganization of APA was new bylaws. And one of the bylaws changes was the statement of objectives, and which formerly read, as I noted earlier, uh, APA shall exist to promote psychology as a science. And that statement was changed to read uh, something to the effect of to promote psychology as a science, as a profession, and as a means of improving human welfare. And clearly some of those changes, uh, not only in the objective statement, but otherwise was the influence of the practitioners in AAAP. And there was a, a hope by those who served outside of the university setting. There was a hope that for those who were practitioners or consultants, that APA would become a more inclusive organization and would afford them the kinds of needs, program time, a uh, code of ethics, which still hadn't been developed by APA and wouldn't happen until the 1950s, an emphasis on training that would be, for example, practica-oriented, uh, internship-oriented, that would give uh, students some real hands-on experience in clinical psychology and later uh, counseling psychology. And that didn't happen very rapidly. The overtures were made. Uh, the initial requests seemed to be placated for the applied psychologists. But uh, when it came time to honor those commitments, the, the scientists who were in control of APA just didn't sort of step up and do what they had promised to do. So APA remained for a while, certainly in, in the early 50s, uh, a largely uh, scientific organization. That would change in part in the 1960s when there was a change in the voting structure for the Council of Representatives, the main decision-making body, uh, what was called the Albee Plan, uh, named after George Albee, who was a, a worker in APA Central Office at the time and also one of APA's uh, presidents. And that plan gave a much better voice to individuals in the practice community. And as a result of that, the power base within the governance of the American Psychological Association really began to shift rather dramatically. It had, it had begun in the 50s, but there was this explosion in clinical psychologists after the war, both in training programs and the number of PhDs produced in the applied areas, particularly in clinical psychology. So there were concerns within the scientific group that they were losing the, the stranglehold that they'd always had enjoyed on APA. You mentioned the Psychonomic Society, which starts in, in 59. Some of those same people who were organizing the Psychonomic Society had been involved in the Psychological Roundtable, which you also mentioned, uh, formed back in 1936. That was a, that's an interesting group of experimental psychologists, young experimental psychologists, who organized a secret society, mostly a New England society, 
partly because they didn't believe that APA offered a forum for the kinds of experimental psychology that they wanted to, to talk about, and partly because the older organization that Titchener had formed that became the Society of Experimental Psychologists, I think you covered that in an earlier program, because that was dominated by older psychologists that many of these younger folks felt weren't all that active in their research programs anymore. So the Psychological Roundtable was this sort of rebellious group uh, run by a group of six psychologists called the Secret Six. Invitations were issued. You weren't a member of this group. You weren't IT. Meetings were small, 35 to 40 people over a weekend in December, typically in, uh, in New England. And when you were age 40, you were superannuated. That is, you were over the hill intellectually and you were no longer invited to attend. So a young person's organization, most of them, the invitee, somewhere between about 28 and, and 40. So out of that group, people like S.S. Stevens and Clancy Graham uh, and Clifford Morgan uh, continued some of that sort of rebelliousness, I think, in the 50s when they brought to, uh, into being the Psychonomic Society. And again, some of the feelings were the same. EPA, they felt uh, the APA program in particular was evolving into a program that made it harder for scientific psychologists to present their work. Just for example, in 1959, APA issued an edict that slides could not be used in any of the presentations at the meeting. Uh, I don't know if that was done to reduce the cost of audiovisual equipment that had to be supplied in the meeting rooms, but for psychologists who were used to presenting data slides as a, as a key part of their talks, it was a, it was a huge blow. And so there were, there were things like that that made the scientists think APA was not uh, holding on to the science they knew. So the Psychonomic Society was founded in 59. It was to do two things. It was to hold a professional meeting uh, once a year that would involve scientific research only, and two, to publish journals in the science of psychology. Interestingly, their membership requirement to be a, a member of Psychonomic, you had to have published research beyond your dissertation. Uh, they were really looking for individuals who'd made a commitment to research. It was a much more stringent membership requirement than what APA had. And then finally, we come to the formation in 1988 of the American Psychological Society, which has since changed its name to the Association for Psychological Science. Um, could you tell us about the events that led to the rift between the APA and the APS? It's, it's a complex set of situations, I think, that eventually led to that. Interestingly, I, I worked for APA Central Office from 1978 to 1980 as uh, director of their office education. And the, the rumblings of all of that were, were present at that time. The American Psychological Society wasn't uh, founded until 1988, so a, a decade after I began my work. But, but that's how long, uh, at, at least 10 years, that the discussions have been ongoing about APA being more responsive to the needs of the scientific community. Uh, by the time I was in central office in 78, uh, the, the practice group, mostly private practice individuals, what, people who would call themselves independent practitioners, clinical psychologists mostly, were very much in control of APA's council, uh, were very much in control of APA's governance as a result of that. They were a huge presence on the boards and committees that made many of the policy decisions for APA. And uh, as a result of that, scientists kept feeling that they were pushed further and further to the back in terms of, uh, of their own agenda. Uh, well, one of the issues, for example, was a great deal of the income for the American Psychological Association was its journals. At the time, 
I think APA published around 25 journals or so, uh, almost all of those scientific journals. Uh, library rates, for example, uh, in what are called institutional rates for those journals were very expensive, and there were lots of individual subscriptions as well. Those were the leading journals in many of the areas. Uh, and they brought in a lot of money to APA, and the scientists saw that money going for practitioner purposes and felt that they were subsidizing many of these individuals who then didn't give much back in the way of science. So. So a number of the uh, members of the scientific leadership within APA pushed APA pushed APA's central office for years to do something ab about the situation. When I was in central office in the late 70s, there was a, the first of the Blue Ribbon Commissions appointed uh, of people in practice and science to try to work something out. There were subsequent iterations of that. I don't remember how many, three or four more committees, some of the same people, some different people offering different models. Uh, one of the models was a, was a federation where the scientists and practitioners would actually have separate organizations but would be under a, a larger umbrella. Uh, they would elect the president in alternate years. The scientists would have the president one year and the practitioners would have the president the next year. So a, a number of these proposals were made. And each time they would come to the Council of Representatives, which was probably by then 80% in the applied area, probably 80% of the membership of council. Council is about 110 people all total. And so hugely disproportionately uh, represented by the practitioner group. And all of these proposals to give science a voice were voted down. It was sort of the reverse of what had happened in the first half of the century with the scientists largely ignoring the practitioner's concerns. And now the shoe was on the other foot. And the practitioners were sort of ignoring them in the same way. Uh, there was a final commission, and they gave APA an, uh, an ultimatum. Uh, th this is what's going to have to happen to keep psychologists in APA, otherwise we will walk. And it came up for a vote on council, and it was overwhelmingly defeated. And within a matter of months, the American Psychological Society had been founded uh, and grew in about five years to about 18,000 members, although interestingly, many of those members maintained their membership in APA as well. In addition to these, these broad-based groups like the APA and the APS, there are dozens of specialized psychological associations as well. What do you think this portends for psychology as a discipline? Is it just so large and diverse that it's irredeemably split into these various irreconcilable sub-disciplines? Or do you think that there's still hope for an intellectual core that holds the whole thing together? I don't think there's hope that psychology will remain any kind of an integrated uh, discipline as, as science or practice. Uh, I look at the science issue right now uh, for both APA and APS. I was in Washington recently for a meeting, and someone noted that the, the, the median age for the scientific community in APA was, was in the 40s. That's not good. Uh, and, and what they were implying was that they were having difficulty attracting uh, new PhD graduates in the scientific side of psychology into a, a membership. Uh, the membership growth in the, in the Association uh, for Psychological Science, uh, APS, has also slowed. Uh, it, it grew rather dramatically, of course, after it was formed and, and sort of zoomed up to 18,000. But I, I, I think, and I, I'm, I'm not certain of these figures, but I think it's remaining pretty flat in the last couple of years. It's really not growing. Uh, and what's happening, where are these people going? Uh, they're going to these other specialized groups. A lot of the biologically oriented folks uh, are going to the Society of Neuroscience now, which is a huge organization that holds an annual meeting where they can go and talk with geneticists and biochemists and cellular biologists and the like. Uh, 
There's a Society for Research and Child Development that's been around for a long time. Social psychologists have pulled out of APA. They still have a division in APA, but they have two meetings now, the Society for Experimental Social Psychology and then the Society for Personality and Social Psychology, both of which meet outside of APA or APS. And so social psychologists go and talk to social psychologists and developmental psychologists talk to developmental psychologists. And it doesn't seem that anyone is too interested in being part of a much broader-based organization. So, uh, And when I talk with folks in other sciences, they say that's a similar course that you see historically in other fields as well. Well, thank you very much for this today. We have been speaking with Professor Ludy T. Benjamin, Jr. of Texas A&M University about the circumstances under which the uh, American Psychological Society emerged from the American Psychological Association in 1988. Uh, Professor Benjamin is the author of a number of textbooks, including A History of Psychology, Original Sources, and Contemporary Research, the second edition of which was published in 1997 by McGraw-Hill. He is also the editor of A History of Psychology in Letters, the second edition of which was published in 2005 by Blackwell. And he's also co-author with David B. Baker of From Seance to Science, A History of the Profession of Psychology in America, published in 2004 by Wadsworth. And now it's time for birthdays. First for February 4th. In 1920, Morton Deutsch was born. Deutsch's research has extended the understanding of racial prejudice, individual conformity, and social justice. For February 5th, in 1857, Franz Karl Müller-Leyer was born. Müller-Leyer was primarily a sociologist, but in 1889, he devised the visual illusion that bears his name. For February 6th, in 1838, Edward Hitzig was born. With Gustav Frisch, Hitzig established the electrical excitability of the brain and located some of the areas associated with motor behavior. Also on February 6th, in 1852, Conway Lloyd Morgan was born. Morgan was an important comparative evolutionist whose famous canon warned against attributing consciousness where not required. But he was not opposed to mentalistic explanations, as some later behaviorists claimed. On February 7th, in 1870, Alfred Adler was born in Rudolfsheim, Austria. Adler was an early associate of Sigmund Freud, but broke with Freud in 1911 and founded the Society for Individual Psychology in 1912. His theory of individual psychology stressed the need for superiority. His terms inferiority complex and style of life have become part of everyday language. For February 8th, in 1878, Martin Buber was born. Buber was a Jewish existentialist philosopher whose description of the intimate I-thou relationship with God influenced humanistic theories of personality and psychotherapy. And finally, for February 10th, in 1916, Louis Gutman was born. Gutman devised a method of attitude scaling derived from the cumulatively ordered preferences of the respondent. And that's it for this episode of This Week in the History of Psychology. We would love to hear your comments on the show. You can email us at twithop, that's the initials of This Week in the History of Psychology, T-W-I-T-H-O-P, at yorku, Y-O-R-K-U, dot C-A. 
We would like to thank York University for hosting the program, as well as Michael Guimar for his technical assistance, and especially Warren Street and the American Psychological Association for their website, Today in the History of Psychology, which we use for research and from which we sometimes quote directly. This Week in the History of Psychology is the sole property of Christopher Green. The opinions expressed on This Week in the History of Psychology are not necessarily those of Christopher Green or of York University.